this is Kiana. You may recognize my voice from a last episode that I did, which was episode one. This will be episode two. Um, this is again, soul support, which uh, my husband and I, John, have put together and we're going to be talking about a lot of our history. I ended the last episode with saying that I was going to talk about where I was before, you know, the whole awakening and how I got there. So I didn't remember that because it's been a few days since I recorded. So I was listening to it. And it's a funny story because um, I'm home by myself. And I heard my front door alarm go off. So um, I thought it was my husband. And then I realized my husband was at work and the kids were at work. I'm sorry, not at work at school at a function. And so I uh, quickly freaked out and then checked the entire house only to realize that the sound I heard was coming from the recording that I made the last time somebody had exited the door uh, to take the dogs out to go to the bathroom and it made the alarm go off and it recorded. So that was kind of funny. Um, In any case, I said I was going to talk about uh, where I was or where we were. Well, it really started when we lived in Texas and my husband left to go to Saudi Arabia for a year. Um, he was over there getting together EMS schools because he's a paramedic. And so he went over there and he didn't stay quiet for the whole year because uh, Benghazi happened and then they started threatening, you know, American lives over there. So he had to return. In any case, uh, he got a, another job um, over a base in Texas and we had to move. So we moved and we bought a house and we lived in this house for a couple of years. And then his base ended up shutting down because it wasn't profitable where he was. So we moved to Key West. Um, We had always really wanted to escape the rat race and we felt like there was more to life than climbing the ladder of success. I mean, he he was making six figures a year over the base, but he was working five 24 hour shifts and he was exhausted all the time um, because they were short staffed and he got sick and was continuing to work. And one day when he was at work at the base, um, he woke up in a pool of his own blood and he had somehow or another lost consciousness and he hit his orbital, which is this muscle right here around your eye. It's your eye socket and he fractured it right here and broke the corner of the sink. So they they took him to the emergency room and it was in a rural area and this hospital in this rural area was not the best because if they had done their job correctly um, they would have noticed when he told them that he his blurry vision was in that eye that he had a nick on his um, optic nerve and they would have flown him for emergency surgery immediately 
but they didn't. So he got a referral. And by the time he got into that referral, which was two weeks later, the damage was permanent. So because of a work injury, he has complete vision loss in that eye. And that's just kind of a sidebar lesson to show you where we were coming from when we tell you, you know, we wanted to get out of the rat race because at the end of the day, like this company that he flew for didn't care that they were shutting the base down. They gave everybody two weeks to apply to different um, bases and that was it. And he'd been working for this company for years. And so that's what it is about these big corporations and all this medical corporations. They, they don't care. Uh, about people they just care about billing you 60 to 80 to 150 thousand dollars so that they can fly you somewhere and the reason I know all this is because I started in 911 as a 911 dispatcher before that I was a CNA for a year in a, a long-term care facility then I became an EMT and did 911 for six years um, and during that time I was also an EMT and worked into in the emergency rooms and we also flight followed. So we did a lot of internal hospital to hospital transfers for patients from rural communities to a higher level of care facilities in bigger cities. And the amount of bad press that there was around how much these flight costs and how exorbitant they were uh, really, really became apparent in the news during that time. But they, they didn't care. And... Um, we had to sell our house uh, that we had bought as a foreclosure and we flipped it and we owned it for about two years and I had this vision for this house because we had bought it as a foreclosure and this is just kind of an example of like manifestation and law of attraction kind of the the magnetic string theory with quantum physics and the whole hologram theory but um, we found this house as a foreclosure and I imagined flipping it and I just had this idea in mind and I um, stayed at home with the kids at first after I graduated with my bachelor's degree in emergency management and so I started doing post-grad sciences to stay at home took care of the kids and I started flipping the house um, while my husband was at work and I was really into all the DIY stuff and I would get, you know, furniture off the side of the road or stuff on Craigslist or because they didn't have Facebook Marketplace back then. But um, And then I would flip the furniture and put it in my house or I would sell it um, to fund my flipping furniture habit because I enjoyed it as art. Um, so we flipped the house completely, uh, installed new floors, new flooring, and... Um, kind of modeled it after the, you know uh, Magnolia Homes and it sold from a couple in Iowa or Idaho that were moving to uh, go to medical school or do their residency at the hospital system in this city and it sold sight unseen within the first 24 hours that it was um, MLS listed so that just goes to show you, you can do anything and you put your focus on it and attention on it and it happens. So that was just a sidebar. But anyway, when the base closed, 
we sold the house and we moved to another base owned by the same company in Key West. Um, we'd made a pretty decent profit off the house, but in Key West, things were so expensive that it cost us $8,000 to move into a townhome with the kids. That was 820 square feet. And we had three kids, or we still have three kids. I shouldn't say had. Um, and he was flying for them down there and I was working in the hospital and I started doing, you know, monitoring cardiac patients on the floor and I started my master's degree in healthcare administration. And uh, we'd been there for six months and then their base shut down. We lost that $8,000. Um, the income, the, the rent was too high for just my salary alone. And um, they had a really bad opinion of the company that my husband was working for, and rightly so. Um, they didn't do very well with the local community. And so it was going to be really difficult for him to, to get on board with another um, agency there. And nobody was paying what he was making at uh, this flight company. So we had to return to Texas, and um, he got a job with um, this hospital agency running their, um, like, dock in the box, urgent care center. And uh, we were there for a little bit. He was pretty bummed about the whole situation and us, you know, losing a lot and having to live off our savings and... Um, they were working him to death again at this company, this agency that he was with. And he wasn't happy, and we weren't happy, and we were struggling. So, again, I decided I was going to change my life, and we were going to separate. And that I was going to get a job no matter what it was I was gonna get this job and um, it didn't matter I was applying for stuff that I wanted um, I wanted to move to Florida because uh, we loved Florida and uh, my best friend lived there and we and she and I um, had met when we were in 911 in Texas together. So we, we had been friends for a long time at that point, like 15, 16 years. So um, my husband and I were going through a really rough patch and I decided we were gonna separate and um, I was gonna get a job and it was going to pay a lot of money. I was determined, and I set my mind to it, and I focused. I thought, if I can flip a house, sell it in 24 hours, I can do anything. So I stopped feeling sorry for myself. I would take the time to make myself feel good. And, um, you know, the little things that matter, hair, nails, started dressing for success, like the RuPaul says. Um... And, you know, buying things that felt good to me. And stilettos were always my favorite. And so I bought a lot of those. I had a collection, as I'm sure many women do. But um, I started working for another flight following company that was um, 
a different flight company, emergency company like the one that my husband worked for that did fixed wing flights, international flights, um, you know, helicopter flights and all over the country. So I would uh, sit there and dispatch and flight follow sometimes Arizona, sometimes South Carolina, sometimes um, Oregon. I mean, we I basically had um, kind of the whole eastern kind of seaboard and the lower kind of southeast part of the country. And um, I was there for three months and I applied internally to a base development director position in Pensacola. And it happened to be right there where my friend was. And I was determined I was going to get it. And I did. I was new at this company there for three months. I interviewed and they hired me and I got the job. It was a six figure salary. It was everything that I had asked for and was determined to have. And packed everything up from Texas and moved back to Florida. Um, my husband and I decided to stay together for our family and give it a go. And you'll find this is a common theme as we talk about things um, in the future. But we moved to Florida and I was there uh, with a, an ambulance company expanding, you know, their practices and forming relationships, you know, because they had the 911 contract and so forth. Um, but anyway, um, Hurricane Michael happened and it happened in Panama City and that was one of the bases that I was over and um, that I was responsible for as a business development manager and so that was a, a big deal and um, I know I'm sidebarring into these stories but that's just the way I'm going to tell it anyway Hurricane Michael hit and it was devastating and I don't know that the coverage on Hurricane Michael in Panama City was this well covered but I started receiving phone calls late at night and I worked like 90 hours a week. I mean, I worked hard for this company, so it was salaried and I was available at all times. And I want you to see kind of a trend here, um, money, increased responsibility, um, perfectionist with lots of trauma, trying to prove herself, uh, burnout situation starting, right? Um, but I was doing the rat race and the rat race again, you know, <laughs> we tried to get out, we get back in, we try to get out, we get back in. And, um, it was the CEO, uh, one of the hospitals in Pensacola. And the sister hospital in Panama City was calling and begging for help and begging for people to get out. And there was no way in and there was nothing we could do that the storm was actively over uh, Panama City. 
and every line that I called to check on the people, my people, my friends, my coworkers, um, it was dead. It would just wouldn't go through. And I didn't sleep all night. Um, the storm was supposed to pass through uh, Milton, Florida, which was another operation where I was. And uh, they closed the bridges when, you know, the wind gets, I think, over 40 knots for 40 miles an hour. And so, you know, you can't get over the bridge from Milton to get to Pensacola. And um, they had no water at the base. We had a new base manager that was over there and he was uh, new and I think this was a challenge for him but uh, I had my degree in emergency management and preparedness so I was I feel like maybe I I kind of knew a little bit more what to do and maybe judged him unfairly at that point but I expected a little bit more from uh, an uh, ambulance and EMS 911 system uh, manager but they had no water, they had no food, crews were sleeping on the floor, uh, <laughs> they uh, hadn't eaten, some of them, in 18 hours, and they were on shift and ready to respond, and also handling 911 calls, um, and I had known the hurricane was coming, we didn't know which way it was going to hit, so I had already stocked up on food uh, for my family, for us, and... Um, all the stores had shut down because the, everybody was anticipating the hit coming there. So I uh, took all of our food. And as I often did for the crews to show them that I really did care about them. And, you know, an attempt to make them feel wanted and appreciated by uh, somebody in management. Um, I would cook for them a lot. And also for the 911 people, I would often give them stuff and visit and cook for them and try to bring uh, the crews together, you know, with uh, 911 dispatch because there's, you know, usually a lot of antagonistic feelings between the two and it's just lack of communication. But, you know, my strategy for business growth was that as we build relationships and community, you know, keeps the turnover rate low, which was all stuff that, you know, you study in school. But, uh, and in management school, things like that. But to keep the turnover rate low, to build and foster relationships, you know, all that good stuff. But anyway, um, took all the food that we had and made them food and took all the water we had saved up for in the event that we needed it and took it to the, to the base so that all my crew could eat. And I say my crew, I mean, I wasn't their manager, but, um, they were my friends. They were my family. That was the base that I was over. And so they were my crew. Um, so were the people in Panama City. Maybe even more so. I was very close to them. They were just amazing people. But the next morning, after the storm had passed, um, we still couldn't get through. So this storm was so bad. They say it was a category four, but there were so many tornadoes and the devastation was so complete 
that it had to have been a category five that just like maybe was barely on the cusp before, but it was so strong that it knocked out in-ground power lines for the phones. So the 911 system was completely shut down. So 911 has, or this was back then, but they have ground line wires and they also can answer cell phones. But this is so that in the event of a storm, the phones won't go out because they're in the ground. Well, the, the storm was so completely devastating that all the power lines were shut down. All the phone lines, cell towers, I couldn't get a hold of anyone. Um, eventually we did. And uh, there was me and the management system, my boss, the president of the company, um, and then laterally, there was the director of operations who was over all the operational stuff. Um, mine was business development and then my boss. They were both amazing, M amazing um, people to work for. Even the president, amazing. Like, this was a real family, so it was such a shame when they got taken over, but... Uh, um, I'm sorry about the dogs, but anyway, the, they told me, um, they were going to increase the limit on my company card and that I was to do whatever I needed to do because our crews over there lost everything. And this is how amazing those guys were. Okay. So there's no power during the day or night. It looks like a war zone. People are displaced from their homes. They have nowhere to go. There's crime that is rampant. And it's like World War Z. Like when we finally got in there, there were, uh, People had put plywood up. They were barricading themselves with spray paint that said, you know, intruders will be shot dead. Period. That was it. Like, intruders will be shot dead. And we had started to merge. Well, anyway, I'm telling you about how amazing these guys are. Sorry. <laughs> um, so they were displaced, too. They were sleeping because we couldn't get in there for three days. They were responding to calls during the day when they could see, but they really couldn't go a whole lot of places because they were down power lines anywhere, everywhere, and they would get electrocuted. So there were many streets that were not just were covered with down power lines, but they were covered with fallen trees and debris and they couldn't get through. So people were calling 911 for help and they couldn't get through. Our crews were just going up and down the streets, um, trying to help as many as they could and bring them back to the hospital. And they were sleeping on the cots and there was no food. There was no water. FEMA crews had not started to come in. And so they didn't eat and they didn't sleep. And they had their families displaced. And so like their houses were destroyed. They had no clothes. 
They had no shoes. They had no food. There was so much water everywhere. Valuables, everything. Gone. Gone. And so we finally got in there. They raised my credit card limit and I got, I rented out the whole floor of the Quality Inn Express, or not not Express, maybe it was just the Quality Inn and Suites, but, and I took our van, we had a van, one of our trucks, and um, sometimes I would rent a vehicle too, so I got a big vehicle, and I made friends with the people at Enterprise, and so they would always... Uh, upgrade me to a bigger vehicle and when I told them you know where I was going um, they of course upgraded me for free and it was amazing um, but I went to the store and I loaded up on food tons of food tons of water um, short-term radio so that was shortwave radio so that the crews could talk to each other. Um, the big company that had taken over this smaller company, and I'm not saying names because, uh, you know, as, mu as much as I have beef with some of their stuff that they did, um, they, my people were good. But they were the FEMA responders, so if that's a clue. You know, uh, they were the ones that had the contract with FEMA. And so they started moving in. And our, my boss, the operation officer boss, the president, all of them, all, everybody was all hands on deck. So they finally cleared enough away for us to get in. And um, one of the crew um, got one of his family members, Arvine, set that up. And then we uh, had our emergency disaster ambus, which is what emergency management agencies have for FEMA, where they can set up operations. And everything sprung into action, but I, I took the displaced families and trucked them back and forth between Panama City and uh, the Pensacola Pace Milton area and put them in the hotel. Took every one of them to Walmart and bought their children and them underwear, socks, uh, toothbrushes, food that they could eat in the hotel room. Um, it was absolutely devastating. Um, they lost all of it. Every single thing. And because it wasn't a big enough storm, a lot of the FEMA stuff that they were trying to get done throughout there was hard to get and some of the crews were off duty and they didn't have boots and there was nails and you know debris everywhere and they're climbing around and transporting patients that they can get to um, in their tennis shoes right uh, one of my crews didn't see where uh, this big tree had gotten uprooted because it was starting to get darker. And so this tree was massive and it had a massive root system. So when it got uprooted and it was torn off to the side, it created a huge hole in the road. And so she didn't see it and went right into it with her car. 
And so she was trying to figure it out and trying to back up and get out. And she was a little older and uh, she, she got robbed by knife point. They took her medication. They took her IDs. They took her credit cards. They took uh, the little food she had. Um, and she had nothing. Um, it was so bad there. And there was no way to communicate because there was no power for people to charge their phones. The radios weren't working because of the power stations and the lines. The phones weren't working for regular lines. Um, people were displaced dead, uh, trying to figure out if their families were okay, and they didn't have anywhere to find food, and they were walking down the streets to find help. Um, we were, you know, setting up food places, and a lot of people were getting out and setting up food places and places to refill propane and get your water, but they didn't have any way to tell people that that's what they were doing. And, you know, the response from the country, once it gets going and mobilized, it's amazing. They, I've never seen so many forest rangers. I mean, they had, it was all hands on deck. Forest rangers, sheriff's officers from all over the country coming into place. And it, I was so grateful for that because the violence was terrible. Like people walking down the street to go, um, try to find food for their families and try to find help for their loved ones who were stuck underneath rubble or people that were, you know, having medical conditions or were on oxygen and don't have any oxygen now and basically suffocating to death were getting assaulted and raped and um, it was really, really bad. I mean, but the opposite side of it was just the love and the response that the community had and came together. Because as soon as we could start clearing the roads, and or they could start clearing the roads, EMS didn't clear the roads. But as the roads were getting uh, cleared out, you know, we could respond to more areas. And as my units were responding to more areas, they would tell me that people would run up to the ambulances and beg them, plead them, crying, screaming, grabbing onto the ambulance, asking for help. And they had a specific area that they needed to go because once they came in and they set up this little um, 911 radio system and got that up and running, that was like in the first um, week or so. But they didn't have power for weeks. So we weren't dispatching or going sending them out at night but they were going out during the day and then people would be grabbing begging for help saying like my my grandmother's stuck my mother's stuck my mother doesn't have oxygen you know my dad's having chest pain like we don't have any food and uh they were having to keep going and say no and after a while after this had been going on for a while and the cleanup was still going on they started going door to door to these houses and kicking people out because they weren't structurally safe anymore so they were having to go door to door and there was nowhere for anybody to go um they had armed guards with ak or ar-15s or ak not an ak-47 i don't know i'm blissfully unaware of, of the way uh rifles work but they were, they were all up there. They had the military in there. They had uh, the National Guard, I guess, 
um, there with protecting on the roof of the hospitals. They had snipers because, you know, things were that bad. They had security, armed security guards in all the entrances of the hospitals. They they had um, only one way for you to get in and out. It was, it was really well executed once it got up and running, but... This whole story is leading up to how I ended up losing uh, my position there, which was that they, my job was to uh, make relationships with the hospitals and come up with solutions. So um, there was a lot of mental health issues and they wanted uh, people to be shipped out because there was just nowhere for them to stay there. So... um, my new boss had come in and he had they'd restructured the whole company and he'd told me to think outside the box we had to find a way because we were the only one available to do these transport systems for these patients so uh i had started with my friends a uh iv kind of company so that you know with um, my friends and my uh, doctor friend of ours uh, an IV company so that we could start responding to like old people and our elders at home where they needed IVs or you know we would do it for it's it's pretty popular but you know uh, vitamin bags and that stuff but we were doing like a mobile thing we had like uh, you know everything medical control all that so um We started offering rides and just trying to get people so that we could, once the patient was discharged, we could move them out. And that was just me thinking outside the box. Well, um, it offended somebody at some point and they, one of the, I believe, uh, local wheelchair van companies there, um, they thought we were trying to start a wheelchair van company and we were just trying to help get patients to different areas and I was trying to think outside the box but anyway um, that's what I was told to do and I did it so whenever this complaint came in it made it look like I was trying to take over uh, the, the whole wheelchair company business which was not the case but instead of talking to me and asking me um, they just stopped answering the phone and they said I needed to come in for a meeting. And, you know, they've done this to my husband and, and the company that he'd worked for. It's very, you know, they don't give you any kind of warning because I had so many relationships with 911 people and all the county commissioners and the city councilmen. They didn't want me to spill the beans or to say anything against them. So I knew that that was coming. So I wrote the president a letter and spelled out exactly what I had done and at whose direction and but um, it was basically a choice of you know getting fired or taking a resignation so I should have let them fire me because then I could have collected unemployment or you know my negotiated um, severance but I was really really angry because I'd worked 90 plus hours a week for them and uh, given up my life for them. I mean, my family, again, was suffering back at the house with no relationship status because I was always going and traveling and my kids were there and they weren't happy and they were stressed and that made me stressed. And so um, we had to move again. And that's where I'll start the next episode is uh, where we had to move after that. 
and um, what happened after that, all leading up to it. So thanks for uh, listening and tuning in. This episode's about as long as the last one, which is a little over 30 minutes. Um, but I'll say that that's all for now, and good night, and I'll see you next time.